just know if you can hear my voice or if you see this anytime this week or if you're in the room, just know that you're loved. Every last one of you, you are loved, and we commit. We commit to standing with you this year. I actually heard a great idea on an NPR article this week on the radio coming back from a soccer match. And it said, a teacher just simply said how touched he was that parents this year were giving him beginning of the year gifts. <laughs> I mean, how elegant can you be? It just seems so appropriate. So whatever is stuck in your heart to express yourself to those who are on the front line in that way, just, just be led of the Spirit. Okay, so here we are. I'm going to try to get through this. It's an emotional day. The end of a wonderful little series today that was never intended to be a series on the book of Ephesians. Who knew? Here we are. So let's read our text today. And then uh, Morris' family is going to pile into a van and head for Chicago right after this. But let's read from Ephesians 6. Now, this is the final chapter in the letter Paul writes to the church in the region of Ephesus in the first century. And it reads this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power and put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then there's this weird comma because they've forced this into uh, grammar. It actually carries over in the beginning of the next thing. So it should read, and having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore, verse 14, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, you can feel he's coming to an end, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. I wonder if anyone else is familiar with this passage. It's a well-worn one. I can pretty sure I could have painted this guy, right, just from memory, exactly the way Paul describes him. He'd be white, of course, maybe not blonde, but he'd certainly be white. I mean, I grew up in the white evangelical church. He'd have a big, thick beard, of course. Those flannel graph images from those church basements last a lifetime. I mention that all the time. Some of you still are trying to figure out what flannel graph is. Something before MTV, we had flannel graph. It was great. I guess this stuff sounds pretty fierce if you're an impressionable, skinny, white kid looking for some form of power to hang on to. I guess it all sounds fierce if you don't actually read it in detail, and if you have no idea what fierce actually looks like. Belt, breastplate, some cool kicks, meaning shoes, of course, which is weird. Does anyone actually know what war shoes look like? I mean, is that a thing? I'm not aware of that. I'm a shoe guy. I'm guessing they'd be super comfortable, right? Because ransacking and pillaging is really stressful on the frame, especially the lower back. So I imagine rock ports only meaner. I mean... Shoes? War shoes? Anyway, these artistic renditions of this perfectly tricked out warrior always had sandals, as far as I recall. Something closed-toed sounds way meaner than sandals. Not to mention safer, but anyway, I digress. Belt, breastplate, cool kicks, shield, helmet. Ugh. Helmets are hot. I hate helmets. But shields are pretty cool. They're heavy, but they're neat. 
But hey, at least this Christian warrior has a proper sword, I mean. A sword is pretty tough, right? I mean, you can make a point with a sword as long as it's extra long and lightweight and made of German steel. I mean, I guess it all sounds kind of badass. But before we get too excited, remember, all of this weaponry is just an analogy Paul uses to make a different point. He's painting a picture at the end of this letter. And these items here are reference, not reference with a C, but reference that make a point, right? They point to something. They are in no way identical with the list he's actually making. They are not the same as the objects he's describing. This is basic logic here, friends. Paul isn't making a list of weaponry. He's making a list of virtues. And don't ever let that escape from your mind that the object and what refers to it are not the same. The referent points to something that's true about the object, but it in no way encapsulates or fully embodies that object. Think of sun and moon. Don't conflate the two. One points to the other. They are different. Why am I saying this? Because this was painted to me as this list of killer weapons with which Christians conquered the world. I guess only I have that story, perhaps. Well, some of you could stop right there and say, you know, the object and what it refers to being separate, I could unwind a lifetime of bad biblical teaching. Of course you could, and maybe you should. Paul isn't actually, as I say, making a list of weapons nearly so much as he's making a list of qualities, of virtues, of a faithful person. And he's using imagery that he knew would, uh, would be understood at the time. So setting the analogy aside, what are we left with as Paul wraps this letter? Well, we're left with truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and all the things God says. That's what we have. This is the kit with which we take the pitch. Pitch meaning field of battle. So as we have done all summer, let's take our time with these verses, keeping in mind the whole trajectory of the letter. Now, here's the key to Paul. You cannot pull things out and divorce them from the greater witness of the letter. So let's try to do that together and see what we can make of this. Verse 10, he writes, finally, comma, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. That word carries what you would imagine it would carry. He's saying henceforth or hereafter or from now on or moving forward, finally be strong, says Paul. And you know an author is about to offer you a summary, which is always my favorite part, right after he uses the word finally. It's like the cliff notes of the whole thing. It's as if he's saying, given what I've already told you, Paul suggests, be strong. Don't go weak. Don't go back. Stand your ground and stay the course. That's the idea. And oh, by the way, what power is required to get this done? Oh, that will be God's power. It won't be yours and it won't be mine. So don't get too fired up wielding this sword and all this cool weaponry. Don't grip that sword too tightly. We will be channel, not source. We will be a channel of God's strength. It will come through us for our protection, but it won't be of our origin, and that will turn out to matter in the end. Paul goes on. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I don't know anybody who still uses the word wiles. I might try this week. It sounds like a pretty cool word. Now, again, reading all of this in one single thought flow, Paul seems to be saying, given what I have written, what I have said, as Paul begins to close this letter, moving forward, he says, armor up, get your kit on, suit up for what's ahead. These big new ideas that Paul has been describing in this letter won't be easy to hang on to, and this is why this matters. These ideas that we have been sitting with now for weeks, these are going to be, they're going to need to be defended. And I guess it's possible to charge off into battle or to hold your ground partially dressed because Paul says on several occasions, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, don't just partially suit up for this. I wonder what the wiles of the devil might mean. 
That'd be fun to talk about, talk about around a campfire. Well, the word chosen here is the same word that we get the word methodologies from, believe it or not. Uh, think of wiles as schemes or plans or methods of evil. And the Bible has more than a few words that end up in English in the word devil, and we're never entirely sure what the writer means when he uses the word devil. The idea here is the one who casts through, the one who accuses, literally the one who maligns inaccurately. And if your mind adds to the word devil, a red dude with horns and a bifurcated tail and a pitchfork and all that, I'm just going to ask you to walk that back. The author is referring to false accusation, bad thinking, old methodologies based on false depictions of how things actually are. That's what the word means. We could do a whole series on bad thinking regarding the hell and the devil, and most of it we could pin on Dante's Inferno, to be honest. It actually isn't textual, but we won't do that today. Moving on. Verse 12, for our struggle, Paul writes, is not against enemies of blood and flesh. In other words, it's not against human beings of flesh and bone, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is getting all very dark and swirly, right? But this is key. Let's not miss this. Paul clarifies, after all this soldiering talk, this list of weapons that our enemy, Paul, is going to say is not human. Having neither flesh nor bone, the enemy, Paul, encourages the reader to defend against is what? It is, in fact, somehow residing in heavenly places, the same place where Christ sits at the right hand of God, according to Paul himself. Now, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of all this demonic, cataclysmic, cosmic imagery. I can't even tell you what Paul means when he refers to rulers and authorities and cosmic power in this present darkness. I've heard everybody's idea of what that means, and I, frankly, I'm not moved by it. I do know it inspired some of the most embarrassing Christian fiction of all time, though. <laughs> it tried to scare good folks into cultural faith, and I'm not sure it ever really succeeded. I hope you don't know the book by the title, This Present Darkness. <laughs> you can pick it up cheap now just about anywhere. Is the world being controlled by the devil? I don't think so. Is this a technical comprehensive list of all the dark forces that fly around us and threaten God's rule and reign? I don't think so. The point here, I would argue from Paul, is the same that Jesus makes, only he uses nicer imagery and word pictures. Here's the point. We have no more enemies, not embodied in fleshed physical enemies at any rate, and that's going to that's be important. Ultimately, we have been reconciled to all flesh, again, borrowing from Paul, Everyone is part of our family now, again, borrowing from Ephesians. So weapons aside, we no longer have earthly enemies to use these weapons on. These weapons are to protect us against systems and ideologies and old methodologies of division. So that's the point here. Now, can evil jump into a physical body, gather power around itself, build a coalition, begin to wreak havoc? Of course it can. Every news cycle is full of examples of this. This week is no exception. Perhaps this week is a notable case in which that happened. That's happening. Can we still hold, though, to the attention of the words of Paul here, that the real darkness is not our brother and our sister? Oh, I think we must. I think we must. Can we hold to the tension that says the ideology that drives them to violence and destruction is our enemy? I think we have to. I think we have to. It's a tough week to make that claim, I know. Watch the news just like you do. But I think, I think it's still true. 
And don't forget, what stands against us, what stands opposed to the work of love in the world, occupies the same cosmic realm where Christ already rules supreme, unrivaled. Paul names that place heavenly places. So let's keep our imagination on a short leash as we read these verses. Let's not go all wacko Christian apocalyptic fiction. God is not at risk of losing an epic war to the devil. That sells books, but that doesn't make it real. The point here is our real enemy doesn't reside in the physical realm alone. Our enemies, God's enemies, the enemies of love, those forces and methodologies and power patterns that keep people imprisoned have already been subdued ultimately by God, Paul writes. Which is why these weapons are defensive in nature, and this is key. Except for the sword, which isn't a reference to the Bible here. The word Paul uses is all of those things that God breathes. He wasn't talking about the Bible. So all that workout in the basements, trying to find those scriptures super fast and get that award because you were wielding your sword as a good Christian soldier, it's all bollocks, guys. That's not what he's talking about. Verse 13, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Paul writes, or whoever in Paul's name writes, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything, stand firm. See what I mean? Our equipment is defensive. It's protective. Think about what he describes. And the orders that we have are to hold steady, not conquer. They are to stand firm, to lose no ground, deploying all these virtues at our disposal. And just to keep our overarching idea crystal clear of the whole book, the earlier methodologies and modes of thinking that Paul calls evil, the old patterns of behavior that Paul challenges the reader to resist all throughout the letter, what are they? They are simply division and exclusion. Hold it all together now. Division and exclusion. The sensation that I don't belong. The the message that you're on the outside, that we are on the inside. These are the enemies that Paul is saying we must defend against. We are one. And it's going to take grit to persevere in that truth. Verse 14. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth. And this is where it gets technical. Fasten it around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever. I love the word whatever, especially when it turns up in the Bible. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We could probably do an entire series on all the definitions and the meanings of these protective, defensive elements of spiritual warfare, but we don't have time today. But I cannot not mention verse, 14, verse 15, just because it strikes me as so funny but yet so real. The author writes, as for footwear, as for what you put on your feet, wear whatever gets you where you need to go, which is so honest and so real when we're talking about the arduous work of peace. Essentially, whatever it takes to stand firm in peace, do that, go there, be that, stand that way, Paul writes. That's a whole sermon right there. But we'll save that for another day. Verse 18 Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert, and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me that make, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. And this is a classic closing sort of idea in Paul. He will go on to write a few more things, but not quite yet. He asks for prayer, as he often does, but not just for prayer. He asks for prayer in the Spirit, which means prayer animated by the life force of God, which is the universal love of God for all mankind, all humankind, embodied in Christ and proclaimed uniquely by Paul. 
And then he asks for boldness because he knew he would need it to continue the hard work of declaring this mystery of good news to all. And there's the closing loop of the whole book. Remember, the whole thing is about the mystery, this ancient mystery revealed. And he asks for boldness to hang on to the mystery that he was called to proclaim boldly to a world that would always struggle to believe that anything could be so generous, so wonderful, so disarming. He begs that we would pray for his own strength. Paul knew, you see, that the work would not be easy. That's why he wrote these letters. <laughs> so he sends these thoughts along with Tychicus, a faithful friend, in order to build up his readers back in the area of, of, of Ephesus to remind them that, they're not, that they not only belonged, but that their sacred charge to keep it simple was, and, and was to remain in the work in, in defensive nature of this idea that they must not go back to the division and exclusion. They would be rooted in the power that God alone has to make all things one, which is impossible to imagine almost, which might be why he begs them here for their prayers for himself, that he too might remain strong and firm. And then after a few closing thoughts in the form of a benediction, the letter closes, is sealed, and is sent. So what do we have here, friends? What might be a functional summary of the book of Ephesians? You might try this. Here might be the, the tweet. It's here. Love is here. You're included. Everyone is. Now you're going to need to stand firm in that. That's the whole book right there. Or you might try, even a little denser still. We're home now. Don't forget it. That's the whole book. Oh, friends, how can I say this plainly enough? Even once you've glimpsed such a mystery, this will take some work to defend, won't it? Most likely you'll slide in and out of the simple awareness of this one human family, capital O, capital H, capital F, that Paul describes. Most likely it will come and it will go. You will carry it for a while, then you'll look down and suddenly realize you fumbled it and you're back to division, you're back to I'm in, they're out, they're in, I'm out. You'll fall back to the old ways of thinking and living unaware, but you don't have to. Stand firm, writes Paul, like a warrior standing her ground. Because this ground, this mystery, will take careful determination to hold on to. This revelation will take commitment to keep it simple, uncluttered, and clear. Notice, we are not told to attack. We are told to stand firm and to defend. Think tree pose, not army of Jesus. Don't you sometimes wonder what would happen if Christians actually lived like this? What would be possible for us if we actually refused to see our fellow human beings as the embodiment of our enemy? What could be possible for us? You know Christian history as well as I do. You've read about warring bishops and bloody holy crusades and fiery inquisitions and global conquest under the symbol of a cross. You've read all about just war theory and prayers of blessings on a military machine so deadly, so lethal, so indiscriminate in its destructive capacity that the ground itself weeps in its wake. You have the same history I have. Oh, friends, historically we have loved power and might and offensive strategies too much to stand still and hold on to a divine mystery that says we are one. So we married a simple gospel to empire and we push it forward with power and the good news became a threat. Either you bow to the story of our mighty exceptionalism or you suffer the wrath of God as our enemy. But we don't have those anymore. At least not in the, in the, in the form of a brother or a sister. We don't have those. Now, 
The systems that have been built with evil intentions to enslave and crush and divide and destroy sacred beings created by God, those must come down. Those are very real. Don't mishear what I'm saying today. Those cannot be tolerated. That is our work. But what stands opposed to us in this regard is so much more than our brother and our sister, y'all. It's the lie that possesses them. Worse still, it's the lie that possesses us. Our work is love to be transformed by it, to build a world that embodies it, to stand against systems and institutions that do not, and to work tirelessly to set all people free. Which is why Paul implores us to make room in our hearts for this ancient revelation of a single humanity, then he begs us to defend it at all costs. It's almost too extravagant to hold, isn't it? It's almost too big to hang on to. I think what Paul is saying is that evil has been subdued by love itself, which feels hard to hear this week of all weeks. But remember, we didn't create this reality. We are just asked to hold on to it, to cleave to it, standing firm in it to the bitter end until every aspect of divine redemption is actualized in the real world, until Paul can say, I am an ambassador no longer in chains. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. And he says, stand firm. The trick is, it's both already here and still on its way. The work is done if only we can add nothing to it while we wait for its full reveal. Y'all, I spent 10 hours on that sentence. (laughs) My final thought. I haven't always seen things this way. I used to think a commitment to strategic power of peace and love was just an inexcusable form of weakness. But I'm older now, and I hear Paul differently these days. I'm also learning to distinguish between the gospel and the American cultural economic propaganda that I was taught to weave seamlessly with it. As a pacifist, a committed pacifist, I no longer read Ephesians 6 as rationale for Christian violence as was common in the culture of my youth. There is something deeper that binds us together than what makes us war against one another. You see, we belong to one another. All of us do. And that's why we should all join in the work of tearing down those things that divide. You see, together we bear in our bodies the great mystery of a God who is in all and for all and through all. Our work is to accept this and to defend this. We were always already part of love's plan. And what, dear friends, will it take to stick to such a mission in the world? Well, a commitment to truth and righteousness, faith, peace, and salvation, and whatever God says. If only we could hold all that together. Oh, I pray, dear ones, that we may. Anyway, that's the point of Ephesians. Why don't you stand to your feet and join me in prayer? If you're new around here, I don't get fired up because I'm angry. I get fired up because the gospel still moves me. I've tried. I've tried to calm down, but it moves me, y'all. Let's pray as we open our hearts and move our hearts towards communion. Let's pray as simply as we can. Move us, God, with a simple commitment to living undivided.
our enemies bring us no peace. The release of them to you brings us peace. Teach us how to live in a world that's already and yet not quite yet being redeemed by the work that you have done. That's not something we must do, but it's something we must accept. And then help us to be useful in that redemptive work. In your name we pray.